you to catch this testimony real quick. I feel inspired by the Lord to, to, uh, to share this testimony, and we'll get it on the recording. I like testimonies before my sermon online because testimonies are the proof in the pudding. Testimonies, the word testimony literally means to do again. God wrote a whole book called Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. It means the testimony. And when you share testimony, the faith that produced that testimony, that miracle the first time, can be released and go into your spirit, into your heart, and create the measure of faith necessary to repeat that miracle again. The word testimony literally means to do again. And so as we were praying right there, this came up. It's been years, but I just want to drop this very quickly. So I had somebody very, very, very dear to me commit suicide. And uh, when I got the uh, report, I was so grieved. I was incapacitated. Um, I'm sure some of you in here have been incapacitated by grief before. You know what that feels like. And I remember sitting in the back seat of the car uh, because I was visiting my family back in Ohio. We just got out to a restaurant. I was just staring at my plate, couldn't eat my food. Everybody else was talking and chattering, and you're just, I'm not feeling it right now again. I mean, the grief is so deep. You just can't breathe. You can't eat. You can't, you're just in a cloud. And I sat in the back seat of my car while they're all outside, you know, talking with each other and just enjoying each other's company, but I could not enter in because of the grief. And the Lord spoke a verse to me by his spirit out of Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, verse 10. It says, do not grieve for today is holy to the Lord. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And literally the grief just came up and out of me and it was gone. I missed my friend, but, the, but, the, but the, the debilitating grief was lifted out of me supernaturally in a moment. Now, I have friends who are clinical psychologists, and they tell you it takes at least two years for grief to process out. That's why they say make no major decisions for two years after you've gone through a loss like that. But this grief was supernatural. I haven't always experienced that with every trial in life, but I thank God for the ones I do. I'm sure you do too. But I don't know who that was for, but that came up and I felt like it was important to share that uh, for you. I just want to pray that into you. If that's you, just put your hand on your heart and I'm just going to pray this for you. Lord, I pray for the testimony I just shared would bring the same deliverance to somebody in here or maybe listening online or watching online that is, is literally paralyzed to, with grief. I pray now and declare in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Grief, go. And God, now I pray for whoever that is or how many people that is, that your spirit now, the Holy Spirit, the supernatural life and joy of God would fill their spirit, their soul, their emotions, their mind, and deliver them. So these aren't just songs we sing, but they are a reality in our lives because of the power, the capability of your Holy Spirit to deliver us in the earth from these things. Everybody said amen. 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 Go ahead. Don't patty cake him. Amen. I love
Oh, awesome. So today what I want to do is I want to um, finish our series today, What Does Love Look Like? You may have seen a little uh, letter I sent out today to the church. If you're not getting my congregational letters, every once in a while I'll just send out um, a letter to you, email. Um, On the guest card that's in your bulletin or online, just go to our website and sign up for my blog. And... uh, that way you're getting my communications from me. Because I really want to really connect with you, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. God lays things in my heart, and I want to encourage you, inspire you, continue to teach. But you know how the Bible says that God confirms the word with signs following? So when I preach things, the Holy Spirit then takes that word as imperfect as it might be coming out of my mouth, it's the Word of God in there, then He takes that living Word by His Spirit and He starts doing supernatural things in your heart with it. So I'm just a donkey. I'm the delivery boy. I'm the mailman. And I do the best I can to deliver God's mail to you. But then the Holy Spirit takes over and does the supernatural work. Well, when I preach, it happens to me too. I mean, we're all in this together, right? And so the last week or so, last couple of weeks, whenever I think about you or I meet you at the Fridays in the Park, which has just been great, I invite you to come join us Fridays in the Park, or in my Bible study, or' talking to one of you on the phone or email, I feel this love welling up inside of me. I remember on my day off just last week, I was sitting to think, what do I want to do on my day off? And I knew there was a handful of guys getting together at Phil Williams' house. And it wasn't just because of Phil's food that I went down there, though that was definitely in the mix because he's an incredible cook. I just wanted to be with some of you. And as I'm driving down, I was just thinking, man, this is a fresh love. This is a new something. What is going on here? And then it dawned on me because I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. It dawned on me, oh, yeah, we've been teaching on love for the last two months. And this is God confirming his word. This is the Holy Spirit creating it. To be real. It's a supernatural love that we are living on. It's God's love that we live on. Amen? I pray the same thing's happening with you. And if it's not, I pray that it does. This will save your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your friends, your witnessing to those who have not yet come to Christ. It's the love of God that sent His Son to the earth. Love is the most powerful force on the planet. The Bible says it's more powerful than faith more powerful than hope. Love is the most powerful force in the world. The Bible says in the last days, the love of many will grow cold and people will turn on one another. We see that happening and we see the results of that. Nobody wants the results of cold, hard hearts and a lack of love. Everybody wants to be in a home filled with love, a church filled with love, a world filled with love. And Jesus's love is a supernatural love that kicks in when our human love runs out. And so today, I want us to look at three stories in the Bible of Jesus' love, because I want to finish this series by looking at Him, because He is the lover of our souls. Let's watch watch Jesus' love go above and beyond these three stories. The first one, some of you may know a story we call the woman at the well. This is a story of restoration. Jesus was walking one day with His disciples, 
he was going from um, he was going from Judah to Galilee. That's about a thirteen-hour walk from Judah to Galilee, and he meets a woman in Samaria on the way. Now, here's the amazing thing about this: Jews back then would never walk through Samaria. They literally, I mean, it was a, it's a much faster route to go from Judea through Samaria to Galilee. But the Jews would take a much longer way around because they did not want to walk through Samaria because it was, in their minds, a polluted land, a polluted religion with a polluted people. They were Jews that had mixed in pagan um, belief systems, worshiping idols, and yet calling themselves Jews. And so the Jews who considered themselves pure, pure Jews hated them because they had polluted their religion. But look what it says in John chapter 4 as Jesus is walking with his disciples. John 4, 4, it says this. Say it out loud with me. But he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. Why do you think Jesus needed to go through Samaria? You tell me. I think you know where I'm headed. He knew there was a woman there living in a small town who was broken. To the Jews, you look at this polluted land, the polluted people, polluted religion, and you avoid it. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save. Talk about a seek and rescue mission. I've come to seek and to save, not just the Jews, all who are lost. This woman was not on the disciples of Jesus' mind. Are the lost on your mind? The person that irritates you the most, the person that's the most lost, the most foul-mouthed, the the most anti-Christ, the most God-hating person you know, the most ungodly person you know, that's the one Jesus is seeking to save. The most broken people are usually the people that are the closest to being saved. Because they know how lost they are on the inside, that's why they act the way they do on the outside. It's all a show, but on the inside, they're broken. I was that way, I know. My friends and I would go out. I would feel this emptiness in my soul, and my friends and I would go out and just get plastered. We'd go to bars to pick fights, and that was the goal, just to get in fights at bars and get as drunk as we could. But nobody on the outside knew that I was trying to salve the pain on the inside. I was trying to fill up the hole that was in my soul. I'd wake up the next morning, and my mom would walk into my bedroom, and she said it would smell like a brewery. I mean, like all that alcohol just coming out of my pores. And I would wake up, and the hole that was in me the night before was bigger. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to get drunk again. I don't, oh, I hate this feeling. Okay, don't have to raise your hand just between you and God. Have you ever had a hangover? Oh, man, they're awful. But guess where I was by that evening? Back in the bars with my friends, 
The next morning, the hole was even bigger. So I went to college to try to fill the hole by taking classes and trying to find out what I wanted to do with my life. And the more classes I took, the bigger the hole would get. Relationship with my girlfriend, the hole just kept getting bigger. I kept trying to fill it up. That's what was happening with this woman, and Jesus knew it. Jesus said, I need to go to Samaria. And the Jews, his disciples are like, what are we doing going through Samaria? And they go to a well at noonday. Nobody goes to the wells in the Middle East at noon because it's too hot. They do it in the mornings. They do it in the evenings. They get the water for the, for the day and they, the water for the evenings, for the meals, for the laundry and everything else they need. But Jesus knew there was going to be a woman at the well at noon. And he goes to the well and he sits down and he tells the disciples, go into town and get us something to eat. So they go away, and here comes the woman, all by herself, and it's nobody but her and Jesus. (laughs) Don't you love divine appointments? Don't you love the way God can orchestrate our lives? He knows what you and I need, and he will orchestrate it just perfectly at the right time, giving us exactly what we need. Do you think this woman who is in a cycle of brokenness, an outcast of society. She had had five husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband. She couldn't hold a relationship together. She clearly, at this point, I'm sure, did not trust men. She had been used and abused. I'm sure in that culture where sexual purity was highly valued, divorce was unacceptable, She had been married five times, living with a man. Do you think for a second that she thought that God had his eye on her? Do you think she thought God saw her? And if she did, do you think she thought he was looking at her with compassion? No way. But Jesus saw her. He saw her before he saw her. Don't ever think God doesn't have his eye on you. The Bible says you are the apple of his eye. You are the joy of his heart. And he sees you. I remember when Abraham was convinced by his wife Sarah to have sex with a handmaid, Hagar, because Sarah couldn't have a child. So she talked to Abraham, well, I don't think, he, I don't think it was much of an argument. Hey, have sex with a handmaid. Okay, if you say so. And so he has sexual relations with Hagar. She has a child. So then Sarah gets mad because Hagar gets pregnant, so Sarah kicks Hagar out of the house, her and her son, her infant. And so here's a woman that has been treated unjustly, and she's now living on the street with her infant. She put the infant over on the side of the road to die, and she went over here to die. No money, no job, nowhere to go, no way to take care of her child. And the Bible says the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, I am Jehovah-Rohi, the Lord your shepherd. What's literally translated is the God who sees you. And he said, go back home. I'm going to make a great nation out of your son. God takes the most broken, the most outcast, the most worthless, the most shunned human beings you could ever meet. 
And he does the greatest miracles in their lives. Why? Why does God seemingly do the greatest miracles in the most broken situations? Why do you think that is? You tell me. Shout something out. Test shows his glory, shows his goodness. God is not impressed with our prowess. He's not impressed with our intellect. He's not impressed with what we can accomplish. Don't, aren't I amazing? Not really. Yes, I created you in my image, but really? I mean, is that the best you can do? Watch this. Light beep! Galaxy is still being created to this day at 186,000 miles per second. Do you think he's impressed? He meets this woman. And in one conversation, in a matter of moments, he restores her. He meets her in her brokenness and brought her into her fullness. He meets this woman who is completely shattered and tattered and broken and in a cycle of brokenness that she can't get out of, as some of you may be. And in one moment with Jesus, one conversation, one afternoon with Jesus, she not only is restored as a woman, as a human being, but she becomes an evangelist, the first evangelist in the New Testament. And some say women can't preach. You just need to stop that. Read the Bible. This woman ran back in to the town she was from, to the men who thought she was trash, to the men that she did not trust, but she met a real man. She met the man. She met the son of God who restored her dignity in one conversation. And he didn't do it by pulling back on her sin. He's the one that told her you've had five husbands and the husband, the man you're with right now is not her husband. In other words, you are, in a cycle, you are caught in a cycle of brokenness. But guess what? I'm the healer. She runs back into town and says, meet a man. <laughs> Come and see a man who told me everything about me. And the whole town came out and got saved. Biblical restoration isn't restoring you back to your original state. Biblical restoration starts at double. Sometimes it's four, sometimes it's five times. When you look in the Bible and it says when you steal something or lose something, the restoration process is at least twice as much. So he takes this woman who is caught in brokenness and restores her and makes her an evangelist. That's our Jesus. Look what the Bible says you and I are to do in the same way. In the book of Galatians, it says this, brethren, if a man or woman is overtaken in any trespass, overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, say this word out loud. Come on, say it out loud. Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness.
The people who puff their chest out the most and act as though they are the strongest are usually the weakest. They're covering up for internal brokenness. What people do not need who are wounded, which we all are, is somebody coming with truth and not mercy and compassion and grace. Truth heals, but mercy always comes first. Watch Jesus. Look at him. That's why it says here, it doesn't say to restore such a one by preaching at him. It says store such a one in the spirit of gentleness. The Bible says Jesus does not quench a a, a smoking flask. In other words, a candle that's just about to go out. Since Jesus is so gentle with that, blocking it from the wind, protecting it, that he won't put it out by being too aggressive. Or a reed that is bruised and ready to snap, says Jesus will not break a bruised reed. He's the healer. We have a dog in our home. His name is Pepper. Pepper, let's see a picture of Pepper. Pepper is a rescue dog. There's Pepper. And Pepper is a scaredy cat. Pepper, we got her from uh, the rescue. And she obviously was abused and obviously by a man. Because for one year, Pepper would not come near me. I would walk into the room and Pepper would go out. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't, well, I didn't do anything to you. Making me feel bad, like I'm an abuser. I know. And so what did I do with Pepper? Did I scold Pepper? Did I come at Pepper? No, that's the worst thing you can do with somebody who has been wounded, abused, taken advantage of, misused. So I was really gentle with Pepper for an entire year. Now I wish I hadn't been. (laughs) Because now Pepper gives me no room on the bed. And when I try to do my sermons and I'm trying to prepare myself to serve you, this is what Pepper does. I can't use my laptop now because she climbs on top of me and on top of my hands. And if I start typing, she starts licking my hand incessantly and will not stop. King David, the mightiest warrior in the Old Testament, said, Your gentleness has made me great. Because of Jesus' gentleness in her life, she broke through societal shame and led her entire town to the Lord. The reason Jesus can use broken people so well, like people that have gone through AA and NA, some of my favorite, because they're not trying to impress anybody. They already know I am a loser, I've come to the end of myself. My life has fallen apart. I am done posing. I love those people. They're not posing. They're not pretending. They're not pretending to be strong when they're not. The Apostle Paul said it this way. I now brag about my weaknesses because when I am weak, then I am strong because the power of Christ rests upon me. God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud person. The only people Jesus was harsh with were religiously prideful people. But to the general folk, every once in a while, he'd preach a scathing message, but it was rare. His messages were to encourage, to inspire, to draw, so that we become like Pepper, 
Well, we are so comfortable in God's presence that we annoy him. (laughs) Do you need restoration in your life? Jesus can restore you. And he can do it quickly. The second story I want to talk to you about this morning is about forgiveness. Forgiveness is really the beginning of restoration. When you come to, like, you see those house, you see those, you see those shows like uh, This Old House, a house that just looks like it's dilapidated and, and it has no hope, or maybe a business. I like watching a show called The Prophet, where this guy, he's a, multi, he's a billionaire, and he goes into these businesses that are about to close the doors and fail, and he comes in and restores that business, or they restore that home, or a football team that's like, you know, one in 14, and a new coach comes in, and all of a sudden they flip it around, and they end up being 14 and one. Those are amazing stories. We love those stories of restoration and triumph. That's what Jesus does with human lives. But it all begins with forgiveness because our sins have separated us from God. So here comes Jesus. And the first thing he does is takes care of our sin problem by bringing forgiveness into our lives and gives us a fresh start with Almighty God. And we see a story of that with a woman who some believe to be a prostitute. I call this the Pharisee and the prostitute. Many of you have heard me teach on this a number of times. I'm not going to teach on the whole thing, but I'm going to give you a little encapsulated form of it because it is such a powerful story of forgiveness. This Pharisee in the book of Luke chapter 7, it says, Then one of the Pharisees, this is a prideful, religious man who thinks he's closer to God than anybody else. That's spiritual pride, by the way. The one, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's home. Jesus will spend time with anybody. And he sat down to eat, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wipe them with her hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. This is one of the most beautiful stories of forgiveness and what forgiveness produces in a person's life you'll read in the entire Bible. This woman, too, was a throwaway human being. She had no hope of having dignity in her town. She was, quote, a sinner. But what happened when she experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? We don't know when it happened. This may have been the woman who was caught in adultery. We don't know. But we do know that she had been forgiven because it says that toward the end of the story, it clearly did not happen in this moment when she was in the Pharisee's home because it it, it doesn't say so. 
It clearly happened sometime before she ran to Jesus and experienced his forgiveness. What did that forgiveness produce in her to cause her to be uninvited and unwanted and a powerful, politically connected, wealthy, religious leader's home? She was not invited to the dinner party. Can you imagine being known as a prostitute in this town? I mean, I'll drop in almost any party just because I like to be in that environment. I like, to, I like people. I like food. And even if I'm not invited, I'll just kind of like see if I can make it in. But a prostitute going into a Pharisee's home uninvited? What produced such boldness? What produced such boldness? Such shamelessness? What produced in this woman such freedom to not care what anybody thinks about her? She experienced the forgiveness of Almighty God. So who are you? Right? When you experience the forgiveness of God, the fear of man, the opinions of others. like So the creator of all of us, the creator of you, forgave me and loves me and thinks I'm awesome. And you don't think I'm awesome? Well, that's your problem. Because I'm walking with him. And he created you. I think you ought to go to him. That's where I went and look at me. I'm inviting myself to your dinner party. It is amazing transformation. You see, it is the revelation of the greatness of our sin that magnifies and causes us to realize the greatness of His grace. See, this is our problem. We don't believe that our sin is that big of a deal. We may think it's a little bit of a deal, but not a big deal. What you'll notice in these three stories we're looking at today, Jesus never pulls punches on their sin. With the woman at the well, he told her about her brokenness. And this woman here, Jesus was very clear toward the end of the story where he talks about her many sins. In fact, I want to read this scripture to you before I show you this quick video. Look what he says at the end of the story in Luke 7, 47. I tell you that her many sins are forgiven. So she showed great love. You see the combination there? And look what he goes on to say. But the person who is forgiven only little will only love little. But let me ask you a question. Between the prostitute and the Pharisee, who do you think had the bigger sin? Say it out loud. The Pharisee. Religious pride, judgment, criticism, and condemnation of others is the biggest sin there is. Because who do you think you are? Point your finger at somebody when you have sin in your own life. The Bible says, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. With the measure you judge others, that judgment's going to come back on you. 
This Pharisee sees this woman who he knows to be a sinner touching Jesus' feet, and he said in his mind, you read the story, he said in his mind, if this man were truly a prophet of God, he would know what manner of woman is touching him. Jesus knew very well what manner of woman was touching him, a forgiven woman. And so then Jesus says, reading his mind, I have a story for you. I have a question for you, Simon the Pharisee. And he tells a story of people who owed two different amounts of money. One was a little, one was a lot. And he said, the, the uh, lender of the money forgave both of them their debts. Which one's going to be more grateful, more thankful, love more? And he said, well, of course, the one that has the bigger debt. And then he says, this woman whose sins were many. And by the way, he didn't say this, but inferring, by the way, Simon, you have a lot of sin too. It's the revelation of our sin that causes us to be the most deep, deeply grateful and thankful for God's forgiveness. I want to show you a quick video of an amazing act of debt relief that just happened recently. And I want you to see the reaction of the crowd as they start, it starts to sink in and dawn on them what's happening. Watch this. On behalf of the eight generations of my family who have been in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus. Now, I've got the alumni over there, and this is a challenge to you, alumni. This is my class, 2019. And my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. You see their reaction? This one student said, well, first of all, what he gave to wipe out their student loans equaled $40 million. And one student said, I don't have to live off peanut butter and jelly sandwiches anymore. I was shocked. My heart dropped. We all cried. And the moment it was like a burden had been taken off. He said, my loan debt is $200,000 and it would take me 25 years to pay it off. Do you realize that your and my sin debt could never be paid off? You could go through all of eternity and it won't be paid off. The Catholic Church has come up with a bogus belief system called purgatory, which is if you didn't live a good enough life before you die so that you could earn your way into heaven, you could go to a secondary place called purgatory, and there you can work off your sins. And as I was talking to one of the brothers that comes to my Thursday night Bible studies, which you're all invited to, Thursday night Bible study, he said, I was raised Catholic, and I literally thought to myself, I'm going to be in purgatory forever. That's what he said. That was supposed to be kind of funny. Anyway, it's not, is it? But if we understand, family of God, 
that our sins that separate us from God can never be paid off by good works or money or accomplishments or uh, 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 accumulation or anything, church attendance, giving, nothing can wipe out our debt but the blood of Jesus. And if we understood what that blood paid for, we would at least behave like these students did whose loans were paid off. And the last story I want to look at real quick is about grace. And this is Peter, and I'm going to wrap up with this. The first story is about restoration. What does love look like? The Sears room. What does love look like? It looks like gently restoring broken people. Love looks like forgiving those who have sinned against you so that you can be set free and they can be set free. And thirdly, it's grace. Peter was impetuous, prideful, cocky, unsubmissive, fickle, unpredictable, arrogant, thought he knew everything, thought he knew more than Jesus. Jesus says, I need, I'm going to go be crucified. And Peter said, no, 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 no. That's a bad plan, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him and calls him Satan. He said, would you shut up for a minute? Peter, he's up on the mountaintop. Elijah and Moses appear. And Jesus, all of a sudden, he, he's out of his human form. And he's in glory. And Peter's there seeing all this. And Peter says, hey, I'll tell you what. I'll make a tent for all three of you. And God has to speak out of the clouds saying, Peter, would you just be quiet for a moment? We're in the middle of something here. And then Peter's saying, I'll never deny you, Jesus. And yet they arrest Jesus, and we read, having arrested him, they led Jesus and brought him into the high priest's house. Peter followed a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you're one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow was also with Jesus, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out. And wept bitterly. We've all failed Jesus. Every single one of us. And do you know. That there's no record of Jesus ever talking to Peter about his denial. Only his destiny. Isn't that amazing? I believe that when Jesus looked over at Peter, as Jesus is being spit on and beat and falsely accused and about to be crucified, and Peter denies him for the third time as Jesus told him he would, when Peter is saying, I'm not weak, I'm strong. I'll never deny Jesus. And then he does it, and he feels like a complete failure. In that moment, it dawns on him. And Jesus looks over at him, I do not think for a second 
it was a gaze of disdain, disappointment, or I told you so. I told you so, didn't I? I don't think that was the attitude of the Spirit at all. I believe the look was, okay, now that you have come to the end of yourself and you realize that you cannot follow me in your own strength, next time, depend on my strength. And that's exactly what Peter did. Because after Jesus was crucified, Peter went back to his fishing career. Some of you think you're on plan B with God. You were on plan A, then you got divorced. You were on plan A, and then you committed adultery. You were on plan A, and then you got addicted to drugs. You were on plan A, and then you backslid. You stopped going to church, whatever it might be. You were on plan A with God, and you ended up out of ministry. You were on plan A with God, and and somehow your destiny got derailed. Your destiny can't get derailed when God is the master of your destiny. God has always got plan A. And every time he breathes back into our broken lives when we're derailed, it's better than it was before. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Peter went back to fishing where Jesus first found him. He figured, well, I guess that three and a half years had hope. I thought I was going to follow the Son of God. I thought I was going to be on his, in his political administration and overthrow the Roman government. I guess that's all over. I'm going back to fishing. And the other disciple says, we're going with you too. They're all despondent, discouraged, hopeless. And then here comes Jesus. He is so Jesus. It says, then as soon as they had come to the land. Now, what happened? Jesus is, on, Jesus, Jesus is over here on the shore while these guys are out here fishing again. I just love Jesus so much. He's so cool. Peter's just buried in shame, feeling like a complete failure. Some of you, I'm sure, feel that way. What's Jesus doing? He's on the shore cooking. Those guys breakfast. It doesn't get any cooler than that. When we're all flopping around and feeling all shame and guilt and failure and what am I going to do and stressed out, Jesus is cooking us breakfast. And he calls out to them as they're in the boat, children, have you caught anything? And one of the disciples says, it's the Lord. So Peter doesn't even wait for them to row the boat in. He just jumps in the water and swims to the shore. And it says, Then as soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. The exact same miracle Jesus did the first day he met Peter. Restoration. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. See, Jesus didn't talk to Peter about his failure because Peter had already wept. Some of you have wept over your sin. That's enough. That shows godly remorse, godly sorrow. That's it. God's not going to talk to you about it again. The Bible says God throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. He's serving them. How humbling. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now he knows Peter is 
suffocating with shame. So what does Jesus do? Does he throw down on them? Dude, seriously? In my darkest hour, you bailed on me? Loser. Did he do that? No. What did he do? He says, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? See, what does love look like? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Those are the little ones, the babies. He said to him again the second time, son, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. See that? He's restoring his love. He denied him three times. He's asking him three times, do you love me? He's getting the shame out. He's bringing the restoration to Peter's soul. He's reinstating him, getting the clouds out of his mind, getting him back on the rails. He said to him, tend my sheep. So you see, that is taking care of them. He said to them a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Those are the adult. Moshe Shirley, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. And when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this to him, he said, follow me. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus said to him, point blank, the first time you were under pressure, the first time you were afraid to admit you were a Christian at work or at school or in your, among your family, or when Jesus is being mocked and criticized, and you've shrunk back and you were afraid, he said, I'm going to work in your life to make you such a bold believer that you will not shrink back. And the next time they come after you, you'll say, here I am. And that's exactly what happened. And they went to crucify Peter. And he said, you can crucify me, but do it upside down, because I'm not worthy to be crucified right side up like my Savior was. And that's how he died. We could go on to talk about the Apostle Paul saying the love of Christ compels him to do what he did. Or James and John who wanted to call fire down on a city that wouldn't receive Jesus. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. And the, the Apostle John who wanted to call fire down on people ended up being the Apostle of love. We could talk about Zacchaeus, his story. The tax collector becoming the greatest giver in the Bible. But I don't want to talk about any more stories of love in the Bible. I want your life to be the next story. I want your life to be the next story of the love of God and how he has restored you and forgiven you and shown you grace so that you can share your story with the world and watch them come to Jesus because of you. Let's pray. Some of you this morning need restoration. Will you come to the Holy Spirit right now and just ask Him to heal you? Right here in this moment. 
One moment with Jesus healed that woman. One moment the Holy Spirit can truly sew up your soul. Right where you are, right there in your chair, just take this moment. Say, Holy Spirit, I need restoration. Restore me, Jesus. Just say it to him. Now I know why the Lord had me give that testimony of being supernaturally healed from grief. Some of you need restoration of your soul this morning. Someone in here has gone through a nasty, bitter divorce and your soul is shredded. I can feel it. That's a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit. Right now, come to Jesus and say, restore my tattered soul, Jesus. Some of you in here are like the prostitute and you feel like you have sinned so badly that you can never be on God's A plan again. Just come to him right now. Just ask him and receive his forgiveness. Ask him to break your brokenness cycle and invade it with his love right now. Ask him to come. Invade your area of brokenness, your area of sin, your area of addiction. Ask him to forgive you and receive it completely right now. Be restored. Let him turn you like that prostitute into an unashamed worshiper. Some of you today are like Peter. And you have failed him. But he's cooking you breakfast. But that's you right now where you are, where you just... Receive his grace. Just breathe it in right now. Receive it. Come on. Receive his grace. You need it. It's your only hope, his grace. All he asks you is, do you love me? Let's all stand and just sing one love song to him. And let his presence drape over us. why on our our hoodies, our t-shirts, you'll see the phrase loving God back. This is what that means. Our worship, our giving, our evangelizing, our loving others, we're just loving God back because he first loved us. Come on, let's sing one love song again before we leave this morning.
Down now, 